It's Veterans Day, the day when we celebrate the men and women who fight to defend the left-wing knuckleheads who despise them and everything they stand for. Maybe we ought to fix that system. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, we're back, and uh, you can hear I'm losing my voice a little bit, but I'll try and get through. I start to squeak or, you know, make any kind of funny noises. Uh, just blame it, on, blame it on something. Blame it on somebody else. Um, the debate. Did everybody watch the debate? Yeah, it was, it was actually pretty good, I thought. You know, I mean, I like the, I like the Fox uh, business guys. I've always really admired <coughs> Neil Cavuto. I think he's just, he's tough without being, uh, you know, nasty. I missed certain questions that they asked at CNBC, like, die, you Republican scum, yes or no, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I definitely missed the, the, what cartoon villain are you, Donald Trump, that was it. But, but I thought it was pretty good. I, I very rarely make political predictions, and the reason I don't make them is because I, my hopes tend to get in the way of my understanding. I'm very good at making cultural predictions because I can I kind of have a broad view and I can see what's going on. <clears throat> but I, I have too much respect for the American people, <laughs> and so I get it wrong. Like I, I was stunned. I, I lost a huge, expensive steak dinner when Obama won the second the reelection because I just could not believe the American people would vote for him again. Uh, shows what I know. However, from the very beginning of this uh, primary season, I have picked Rubio Fiorina. I thought the Republican ticket was going to be Rubio Fiorina. And like all predictions, you know, I kind of lost my faith as Trump was climbing and all this stuff. But every time I see them on stage, I walk away going, it's going to be Rubio and Fiorina. I mean, last night, the three people I thought did great were Cruz, Rubio, and Carly Fiorina. Cruz and Rubio get better every time, which is a really good sign. That's a sign of actual intelligence because one of the signs of true intelligence, not just high IQ, is flexibility, you know, is, is learning stuff and changing as, as situations change. And both uh, Cruz and Rubio have shown that in the way they've developed. So that's, that is really good. I think too many people are looking at Cruz and thinking, I'd vote for him, but he can't win. And I think that's going to really hurt him. And they may be right. You know, I mean, it stands to reason if the country is divided, he may be too far to the right. The only thing that would work against that is, in the end, an election is a binary system. It's going to, if, if Cruz wins, it's going to be Cruz versus Hillary. And I think it's possible he could beat her. I, I think it's possible, you know, Bugs Bunny could beat her. I think she's such a bad candidate. She has to show up. I mean, the way she's been winning is just by hiding, basically. But every time she shows up, her polls go down. So... Cruz could beat him, now, you know, but I still think Rubio Fiorina, I think Trump looks tired and done, and Ben Carson, God love him, you know, he is going to win a place in heaven, but he is no way is he going to win a place in the White House, because he can't even express himself. I mean, do, does anybody think, I would like them to ask questions like, how many states are there, Dr. Carson, you know, <laughs> like, how many, how many branches of government are, just see if he knows anything about how the government works. And finally, Jeb Bush, somebody has got to put this guy out of his misery. I just keep, we should call him Jeb, exclamation point, Bush. That exclamation point now, that may be like criminal abuse of a punctuation mark. I mean, is, there, is that a crime, like pull over? You know, you've been, you've been misusing that question mark, period. <laughs> you know, that's a little, little punctuation mark humor there. But I mean, Jeb, Jeb exclamation point is like Hillary honest. I mean, it's such a condensed lie, it doesn't even take another word to make the lie. It's like that guy is so boring, <laughs> putting an exclamation point after the, Anyway, I, it's just sad to watch him. I think he should throw all his support behind Rubio. Rubio is him in the future, you know, and he is him in the past. And his time has passed, and which is painful, I'm sure, but his time has passed. One thing I have to 
just talk about before I go into what, what I want to talk about, which is Veterans Day and, uh, and some of the places that our attitudes toward veterans come from. One thing I just, I, I haven't, I know this happened a couple days ago, but I haven't dealt with it, is this thing that happened between George Will and Bill O'Reilly. Did anybody see this? I mean, <clears throat> Bill O'Reilly writes this series of books, Killing Jesus, Killing whoever, I can't remember who all the people he's been killing, but uh, they're, they're really actually, I don't even know if O'Reilly knows this, but they are a steal from books that were written by a guy named Jim Bishop maybe 50 years ago, like the, they were called The Day Lincoln Was Shot, The Day Christ Died, and he just would go through everything that led up to that moment. So they've done Killing Lincoln, Killing Jesus, and now they've done one called Killing Reagan, and I haven't read it, and as I understand it, the thesis is that when he, uh, when uh, Hinckley, I guess, uh, tried to kill him, the bullet wound, I guess, set off his Alzheimer's, that he was never quite the same again. And George Will has taken issue with this. There's a memo that uh, O'Reilly has never seen, but claims exist that says he was acting badly. So Will wrote a column saying this book is, is wrong. It's badly researched and it's wrong and it's dishonest. O'Reilly had him on the show. George Will, one of the most famous conservative columnists, one of them, certainly one of the most long lasting, goes on the show bravely enough to, to defend his thesis. And this, this was how this exchange ended. Watch the, the end of this exchange. And Killing Reagan is a laudatory book toward Ronald Reagan and, and you didn't even mention that. It is not a laudatory book. It, it is, is doing a laudatory the, book, the, or you it can't is doing read. The work of the, it is doing the work of the left, which knows that in order to discredit conservatism, it must destroy Reagan's reputation as a president. And your book does the work of the American left with its extreme recklessness. And when you, you finally got around after the book's publication to scheduling an interview with Ed Meese, you then canceled it saying you we were We canceled it because Ed Meese wanted to come on with conditions. It's, Nobody it's comes on you with haven't conditions. Even seen, so I do not understand how you've read a memo you've never seen. All right, look, here's the deal. That memo was written. That meeting took place. All of what we write in Killing Reagan is true. You're a hack. You're in with the cabal of the Reagan loyalists who don't want the truth to be told. Really? You're a hack? I mean, the guy, I, I don't even, I'm not even a big George Will fan. George Will comes from those old days when Republicans had a minority and actually kind of liked it. You know, if you watch Republicans, they actually prefer to be in the minority because when you're in the majority, you have to do something and they don't like that. So they're constantly staging this theater like, well, we tried, you know, we passed the bill, but it died in the Senate. You know, and now they have both the House and the Senate. Well, we tried, but uh, the dog ate our bill. You know, they just they really don't want to do anything. <clears throat> so they actually like being in the minority. And Will is from those days when they were civil and all this stuff, but just never won anything. But really, I mean, the guy is a real journalist. He's a good journalist. He's a good columnist. A literate. He's a hack. I mean, that's I, I, this is the thing that really bugs me about Fox News. Even when they talk to leftists, you're the host. You're a host. That guy's your guest. You know, that's not the. It's not conservative it, to treat people that, like that. And I just, I, I can't stand it. It's the reason I think the best show. Listen, without Fox News, there would be no news. So I'm not knocking. Uh, I'm not knocking the station. And. But I do feel like O'Reilly has become kind of untouchable. That is not the way you treat a guy of Will's stature. And but you know, the um, the Brett Bear show is the best news show on television. So Fox is really delivering a service. But I don't know. I hate that. To me, that's like anti-conservative and anti everything we stand for. World World War One. Does anybody know why today is Veterans Day? I'm in a room full of young people, so I just want to see. Does anybody know why November 11th is Veterans Day? <laughs> it's interesting. 
11-11 at 11 a.m. was when they signed the armistice to end World War I. And in England, I think they call it Remembrance Day. Uh, it's Armistice Day in other places. <clears throat> and World War I, when I lived in England, uh, and tra I traveled around Europe a lot, and the thing that really came home to me is that uh, Americans got into World War I at the very end of the war. Uh, there's this wonderful description in Vera Britton's book, Testament of Youth, which they just made into a movie, when she looked up and saw the Americans coming and they were like giants because they were so much better fed and taken care of than the Europeans. These men came over who just looked like they had come out of science fiction and they ended the war almost immediately. It, it, almost, that's what um, ended the war really quickly. So they got into it late. And we had been, if you travel around the villages and towns of, our, of New England, every little place you go to has a Civil War memorial because every little town lost men in the Civil War. That's what it's like in Europe for World War I, every single town. You can go into a town that has a 1,000 people in it. There will be a statue with 50 names on it of people who died in World War I. It totally changed the world. When World War I started, they, they had just been through the Victorian era. Right? The Victorian era ends, let's just say, 1900 to be, you know, uh, to, to make it even. One of the greatest periods in human history. Uh, people make fun of the Victorian era because they remember the kind of sexual restraint of the time and the sexual hypocrisy as we now think of it, but it wasn't. You know, there was real sexual restraint. But it was a time of liberation when uh, people got the vote who never had had the vote before. The, the uh, franchise really spread out, especially in England. Greatest literature ever written, the greatest novels ever written were written during the Victorian era. Statesmen like Disraeli, even Abraham Lincoln in a way is a Victorian. Um, and, and Europe was at its height. It was in this fantastic moment. And after the Victorian era, there came along these people who started to carp against it. They were kind of like the people of the 60s in America who carped against the greatest generation because they couldn't compete. They couldn't do what the Europeans did, so they kind of sneered at it. There's a guy named Lytton Strachey. They made a movie about him. Um, that who wrote a, a book called Eminent Victorians, in which he made fun of all the Victorians who had built the world that he was living in. And Virginia Woolf was one of these people, and, and a whole bunch of writers. But still, but still, Europe was at its height. It was a magnificent civilization uh, that had really just peaked. And suddenly, it was gone. I mean, just gone in four years of the worst bloodshed imaginable. Uh, here are some of the things that happened during World War I. The Austrian Empire fell. The Austro-Hungary Empire was a huge empire. Uh, <clears throat> one of my great uncles died fighting for the Austrian Empire. The German Kingdom fell. The Ottoman Empire was destroyed, ultimately. It took a little while after the war. The Armenian Genocide took place. Uh, the Russian Revolution took place. So the Tsar fell, and uh, the Soviet Union began during the war and because of the war, because of, of the deprivations of the war. Uh, you know, it stirred that spurred that on. The borders of the Middle East were redrawn in this kind of casual way. Oh, we'll put a country here, and there's another one. It's great, you know. And without thinking about all the tribes who were divided so that people, you know, they just basically uh, condemned that area to perpetual warfare after that. And, and um, of course, Winston Churchill once said in, in his wonderful memoir about being a young man that he was in a room with all the greatest leaders in Europe before World War I and in a room with all the greatest leaders in Europe after World War I and none of them were the same. It was all, all different people. And of course, the peace that followed World War I was on November 11th uh, at 11 a.m. 
<coughs> was very punitive toward the Germans, and it forced them in to pay off these debts because the Germans were thought to have begun the war. Um, it forced them to pay off these debts so that they went into bankruptcy. And for the German soldier who was out in the field, they didn't realize why the Germans surrendered. So one day they were fighting to win, and the next day they were told the war was over and they had lost. And they were very, very, very bitter about this. And they called it the, the stab in the back, they called it. And it made them bitter, and they got the, there were all these conspiracy theories that the Jews and the communists had plotted against them. And one of the people who bought into these conspiracy theories and thought the Jews had stabbed Germany in the back was a lance corporal by the name of Adolf Hitler, who had been... Uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's true. He was a very brave uh, soldier during the war. He had been gassed and uh, been through terrible things. He won the Iron Cross. And he came back with this real bitterness uh, against this cabal, he thought, of Jews who had ended the war while he was out there trying to win it and all of his fellow soldiers were trying to win it. <clears throat> but, but more than anything, uh, the, the, the real effect of the war happened to the men who fought it, obviously. And the big shock, the great shock of the war, was what it was like. Before the war took place, war was pictured as a kind of a noble endeavor. It was tough, it was dirty, but there were, you were on one side, I was on the other, we shot at each other, we stabbed each other with bayonets, there was still a certain skill. You know, going back, if you think for a minute, just imagine for a second what it was like to fight wars with swords. You know, really, a, a warrior then was almost like a football player now, an athlete. If you were a great warrior, there are descriptions in the Iliad, in Homer's Iliad, of Achilles just going through the field and just killing this one and killing that one and killing that one. And so you could name the guys this guy killed. It was a personal thing where one guy with a sword fought another guy with a sword. And we've all seen it in the movies. Okay, they went off in a way with that idea of war in their minds, and they thought it was going to be very quick. I, I went through a period where I became obsessed with World War I. When I was living in England, I was living overseas, and I saw what a big deal it was. So I started reading book after book after book. I must have gotten through maybe the 10th book I was reading when I suddenly realized, I don't know what this war was about. I don't, I don't know why they had this war. I mean, they were, it started with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in the Balkans, and he was the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And then, you know, the, the Austrians thought, well, the Balkans wanted independence, so they thought they'd use this as an excuse to put them down. And the Russians said no, and the Germans allied with the Austrians, and France and Britain allied with the Russians, and they all just started killing each other. And this was put forward as a sort of great campaign, a great crusade. And so they went off to this war, these young men, an entire generation of young men, went off to this war with that old idea of war in mind. I couldn't find a, a European... Uh, World War I song, but this is really typical of the attitude of the people who went to war. This is the great American songwriter, George M. Cohan, who wrote this when we joined the war in 1917. It's a very famous song called Over There, but just take a listen. Listen closely to the lyrics and the idea of what this war was going to be like. Get your gun, get your gun, take it on the run, on the run, on the run. 
on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. Over there, over there. A great song, an American classic song. We won't come back till it's over, over there. What a great line. <clears throat> Kids flocked to this war. I mean, these young men flocked to this war, marching off with the women cheering and all this, and had this idea, you know, of the, uh, Europe hadn't had a major war since the Battle of Waterloo. A hundred years had gone by. They'd forgotten what this looked like, okay? In that time, and if the generals had been paying attention to our Civil War, they would have guessed this, but in that time, they had invented things like the machine gun, okay? So instead of Achilles fighting Hector on the field of battle with a sword, these guys wound up dug into trenches, into pits in the ground, reinforced with wood, and they would charge over the hill. And if you go to the British War Museum, they have recordings of, of people who were there telling you what it's like. And one guy compared it to being sprayed with a hose. You charge over the hill, and they just gun you down like this. You know, the whole, just the uh, machine gun passing back and forth over these boys. 38 million people died in World War I. Four years, 38 million people died. And then it was followed by a flu epidemic in which almost as many people died afterwards. Another 20 to 40 million people died. There were battles in which over a million people died in a battle. Now, remember, think back to the war on terror and how the left-wing media was reporting every soldier who died. Remember that? And which suddenly stopped when Obama got elected. Suddenly, soldiers died and we never heard about it anymore. They were you know, playing on our emotions. The British, at the Battle of the Somme, the British, I think, lost 60,000 people, 60,000 young British men. Think about that for a minute. 60, that's a village. One day, that's in one day they lost them. People died in an hour. There were times in an hour when thousands and thousands of people died. So these guys march out singing over, over there, and what they find is this nightmare. You couldn't have. You couldn't have had. Not. You couldn't have dreamed it. You couldn't have thought about it. So a lot of these, because the entire youth of Europe went. It wasn't just the poor boy who went off to fight the rich man's war. It was everybody. And so you had a lot of intellectuals and thinkers out there who were bringing back word of what this was like. And so the poetry uh, of this period <clears throat> was very, very powerful. Written by a small cabal of people from a very small social class, many of them gay. I mean, this may that may have something to do with it. But there's a very small cabal of like this British poets who wrote this this poetry describing what it was like. The most famous of these poems is called Dulce et Decorum Est, and it is from a Latin tag from the poet Horace, <clears throat> Dulce et Decorum Est, uh, Pro Patria Mori, which means sweet, like in the ice cream, dolce, dolce, whatever it's called, sweet and proper is it to die for your country, for your fatherland. Sweet and proper is it to die for your fatherland. And uh, the, the poet uh, 
um, Wilfred Owen, the best poet, I think, of World War I, wrote this poem just describing what it was like to be in a gas attack, because that was the other thing. This was the first time they used poison gas, which was a nightmare, you know? And he describes throwing uh, a body, a guy who's been gassed, into a wagon. And then he talks about how it haunts his nightmares. And he says, to the reader, he says, if in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. So he was saying, there's nothing sweet, there's nothing right about dying for your country. It's a nightmare. <clears throat> Soon after the war, one of the great novels of World War I, and World War I produced many, many great novels, but one of the greatest was All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque. And it was made into a film about a, like a year, a great, a classic film about a year after the book came out. I think the book came out in 29 and the movie was 1930. Here's a scene from that movie which sums it up. This kid, he has, he has, his teacher inspired him to enlist. His teacher gave these patriotic speeches and inspired him to enlist. And he comes back from the trenches and he hears the teacher trying to inspire a new class. And he goes in to talk to the teacher. And the teacher says, oh, my boy, wonderful. Now you can inspire them. Listen to this scene. As if to prove all I have said, <clears throat> here is one of the first to go, a lad who sat before me on these very benches, who gave up all to serve in the first year of the war. One of the iron youth who have made Germany invincible in the field. Look at him, sturdy and bronzed and clear-eyed, the kind of soldier every one of you should envy. Oh, lad, you must speak to this. You must tell them what it means to serve your fatherland. No, no, I can't tell them anything. You must, Paul. Just a word. Just tell them how much they're needed out there. Tell them why you went, what it meant to you. I can't say anything. If you remember some deed of heroism, some touch of nobility, tell about it. <laughs> I can't tell you anything you don't know. We live in the trenches out there. We fight. We try not to be killed. Sometimes we are. That's all. No. No, Paul. I've been there. I know what it's like. That's not what one dwells on, Paul. I heard you in here reciting that same old stuff. Making more Iron Men, more young heroes. You still think it's beautiful and sweet to die for your country, don't you? Well, we used to think you knew. But the first bombardment taught us better. Entire generation of men came back from the war, <coughs> the thinkers of them and the writers and the artists, saying what this kid is saying here and what Wilfred Owen was saying in his poem. And even though Americans had not been touched by the war in the same way, the collapse, 
we forget now, especially out here in California where it's a little different, but we forget that the culture of America rested on top of the culture of Europe and we, had, we looked to their thinkers uh, for what, where the intellectual level was supposed to be. And so many of our artists who fought over there stayed over there in Europe and became expatriates. Most importantly, or among the most important, was Ernest Hemingway. And he started writing these novels about what the war had done. He was an ambulance driver in Italy and a hero. He was, I mean, he ran out and saved a guy's life and carried him on his shoulders and was shot down and went to the hospital and all this stuff, a heroic, uh, heroic guy. And he wrote these novels. Uh, he wrote a novel about World War I, a beautiful, beautiful love story called The Farewell to Arms. And listen to the fact that because they felt they had been lied to, they began to question the entire structure of values that were Western values, that were our values. And this is an American writing in A Farewell to Arms. <clears throat> he has his character say, is Ernest Hemingway, I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice, and the expression in vain. We had heard them, sometimes standing in the rain almost out of earshot, so that only the shouted words came through and had read them on proclamations that were slapped up by bill posters over other proclamations, now for a long time. And I had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards at Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to bury it. And as the values came under question, those, those values of sacrifice, of, uh, of honor, of glory, as those come, came under question, of course, the underlying value, which was Christianity, came under question and began to crumble. The, the belief in God and the belief in the church and the belief in, in Christendom began to crumble. The greatest expression of this crumbling was uh, T.S. Eliot. It was written by T.S. Eliot in a poem called The Wasteland. A very difficult poem, but it kind of was the springboard of the literary movement called modernism, which was attacking all of the values that had gone before, the values of glory, the values of patriotism, and the, the values of Christianity, of, of Christianity itself. And in a really brilliant passage, I don't know how much time I have to read, I'll read what's there. Uh, <clears throat> the, the poem is difficult to understand if, without notes. You have to look at it with notes. But there's one passage where he's describing a wasteland, and he describes an apocalypse filled with imagery of crucifixion and the death of Christ and the death of Europe and filled with World War I imagery. And then he describes the wasteland that, that follows it. And in this poem, my belief, and I'm not alone in this, but not everybody believes this, my belief is that the word water is referring to the living water, is referring to Jesus Christ. And Eliot, one of the most brilliant critics and po po poets of the age, said, here is no water, but only rock. Rock and no water and the sandy road, the road winding above the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink amongst the rock. One cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry, and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth carious teeth, rotten teeth, that cannot spit. Here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, if there were only the sound of water, no water, it's gone. The world is dry. And Eliot now, in this poem and later, begins to try and reconstruct the ruins of the civilization. 
And he ultimately did. <clears throat> when they taught him, when they taught Eliot to me in college, they never mentioned this. He became a Christian. He reconstruct what he came to understand was you had to reconstruct the culture inside yourself. And so he became a Christian. The thing is, when the values of a civilization fall apart, when we lose our faith in Christianity, in honor, in freedom, in the things that grow, grow out of Christianity, in the things that grow out of Athens, it's not as if you're then free. It's not as if war goes away. What happens then is the people who have faith in something evil come up instead. And that's what happened after World War I. When Hitler began to take over the countries around him, he knew that the leaders of the free world had lost their faith in what they stood for. He knew that the people of the free world lost their faith. When Neville Chamberlain went and essentially gave Czechoslovakia to Hitler and came back and waved that paper in the famous moment when he said, I have achieved peace for our time, the crowds cheered. We make fun of Neville Chamberlain now for being weak, but the crowds cheered him, okay? And when Obama came, comes back from Iran and makes a deal with Iran to let them get nuclear weapons, it's for the same reason. It's because we have lost our faith. And when you lose your faith in the things of Christ, when you lose your faith in the honor and glory uh, and sacrifice required to uphold a good civilization, war doesn't end. It's just that the bad guys win. That's all that happens. So when we celebrate today, when we celebrate the veterans, <clears throat> we're not celebrating how sweet it is and how glorious it is and how righteous it is to die for your country. We're celebrating the men and women who have the guts and the knowledge, the wisdom, to know that sacrifices still have to be made for everything that's good. War is glorious not because what happens in war is glorious, but because of the courage that makes people face that horror that horror. And everything that we have that's good and everything that we believe that's right is only upheld because people fight and die for it. And it's our obligation, who don't fight, who don't die, it's our ob obligation to continue to believe and to continue to find the reasons why these things are good and why they matter and to celebrate them uh, when they turn up uh, in people of nobility and courage like our, our military. All right, that's what I have to say on Veterans Day. Uh, stuff I like. You know, one of the things about uh, terrible times and terrible moments is they produce great art. And after World War I, when there was so much emptiness in, in the hearts of the West, Americans developed a new form of literature called tough guy fiction. If you look me up on Wikipedia, I think I'm referred to as a tough guy writer, which means that I'm in this tradition, and I am. These are the guys who inspired me to become a writer when I was a kid. Among the greatest of tough guy novels is a crime novel called The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Cain. It's been made into a movie, I think, seven times. I've seen two of them. Only one of them is any good. But the novel is as thrilling and exciting and insanely sexy uh, today as it was when it was written. It's, um, it really is a novel about what happens to people when they lose their values. And it's an exciting, exciting crime story. There's nothing like it. It's, I, I think it's listed as one of the 100, uh, I think American Library lists it as one of the 100 greatest novels, American novels. And it is. It's just fantastic. The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Cain. That's it on Veterans Day. we got one more day tomorrow. So we'll be back on Thursday with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>